What we should do in this country, where we obviously don't have firearms, is we should arm 1% of the people. <laughs> and they should be given a pass that if someone is rude to them, they are allowed to shoot them dead. <laughs> right? Now, I think that would stop people being rude. Right. I think, I think the Americans are onto something here. Okay. I don't see gun crime in America as a problem. I see it as a solution. <laughs> Hello, I'm Danny Wallace. I wrote the book F You Very Much. And in this episode of the podcast, I ask you, can rudeness kill? Now, it seems a silly question, and you might already be thinking that on the surface, yes, of course, you know, you say something nasty to someone with a gun, or you get into an argument on the road, and you might end up in trouble. And that is a very good point. If you are rude to the wrong person, Mark Haynes, it can go very wrong, particularly if it's to their face or in front of them. I know someone who was uh, once rude to the boxer, Chris Eubank. Yes. Yes, he said, (laughs) I can do a good impression of you, and Chris Eubank bridled. And my friend thought, well, the only way to get out of this is to show him how good the impression was. Yeah. And Chris Eubank was absolutely furious. And my friend realised as he was beginning to go, tho, tho, <laughs> oh, no. he thought, what am I doing? Yeah. What am I doing? This is, this is one of the few men who could easily kill me with one blow. <laughs> Pulverise you. And what am I doing? I'm going, listen to how you sound. Yeah. The, <laughs> Never mock a boxer. Don't, don't be a boxer mocker. That is our family coat of arms motto. Is it really? Never mock a boxer. Uh, have you mocked anyone to their face? Have you been rude to someone? Do you know what? I've done it, and I didn't mean to do it to their face, but I, I did it to their face. <laughs> and that was the Foreign Secretary, Boris Johnson. Boris Johnson. Mm, at Christmas time. Of all times. I know. Why would you be rude to that angel? Well, I was with my wife up in uh, the top floor of Fortnum and Mason, which uh, is a I'll big... St- I'll stop you there. <laughs> <laughs> what were you doing uh, anywhere near Fortnum and Mason. <laughs> Do you know, when you go to that... Where top- an avocado costs you, you your left arm. <laughs> they sell tea, right? And now tea, you can get anywhere. You can get tea literally anywhere. Yeah. But if you want to get tea and pay £12 for that tea, <laughs> Fortnum and Mason is really the best place in oh, town to go. Good tip, good tip. Very good tip. But if you go there at Christmas, it's rammed. It's absolutely chock-a-block. It is... There must be 400 people just buying tea, something they have no interest in the rest of the year. Christmas time, tea! The two things go together so well. And we were basically, we'd we'd moved up onto the upstairs floor, and the upstairs floor, if you've never been there, it's not worth going to. (laughs) It's full of really expensive canteens of cutlery and weird things you'd never need, like sort of gravy boats, but ones that cost 300 quid. Right, Really an asparagus spiralizer, yeah, in, yeah. In a pewter. And, and, and and sort of like barnacle spears and things, just <laughs> odd, weird bits of cutlery that you'll never have any need for. Yeah. That's why God gave us hands. <laughs> if you, if your fork and knife aren't cutting it, you've got your two <laughs> easiest utensils on the end of your arms. But I was uh, up there and it was very very quiet, um, nothing going on, and I was looking at I think a knife rest that cost about eighty quid. Even though a knife rest, it's just a piece of of, of pottery. It's, it's like something, if you made it, you'd go, I've got no use for this. And you go, well, you could rest your knife on it. And so you rest your knife on it, what, to save your tablecloth? Presume so, yeah, right. for, uh, at a cost of £80 pounds, right. uh, from Fortnum and Mason. Yeah. Crazy. And uh, my wife suddenly said to me, she said, oh. she said, hey, look, Boris Johnson's here. And I didn't look up. And I just said to her, I said, oh, he's a bloody fascist. 
<laughs> and I looked up, and Boris Johnson was probably four centimetres away from me. We were on the separate... You know where you get the corner of a table? Yeah. I was on one side of that corner, and oh, he was on the other. Man. And I said it, and as I looked up, I could see him wince. He winced like, you know, if he'd got a bit of lemon in his eye. Yeah. He, oh, gosh. And I thought, I, I, sh- I should apologise. I should apologise. And I thought, you know what? No. Ooh. No, that was that was what I thought. It came from your heart. It came from my heart. It made me sound like a cast member of The Young Ones. Yeah. But I thought he was a fascist. <laughs> and I thought, I'm not going to say sorry. I'm not going to say sorry. So I took one step back and then we carried on walking. It was a long walk because it was an empty floor. And I just got the feeling that he could hear me walking off as well. It was so excruciating. But I felt awful about it. I felt really, really bad. And how do you feel he would have felt about it? I think we, we always have that thing of going, well, they're politicians. They're used to it. You know, I think when he was searching for you know, a, a knife, knife rest, rest <laughs> the last thing he thought in, in the confines of Fortnum and Mason on Christmas Eve was a man would hiss into his face. You bloody fascist. <laughs> But it could have gone so wrong. He was surrounded by knives. <laughs> Resting beautifully, of course. Yeah. I, in that respect, he was the bigger man. I don't think anyone would have... I don't think there even would have been a police investigation if, as a result of my rudeness, he'd plunged a gravy bowl into my throat. <laughs> I think everyone would say, you know what? I think we've got to say he did the right thing there. There was a newsagent's um, and sort of small grocery shop near me when I lived in um, North London. Mm. And the guy there once um, uh, told me this story that someone burst in one day and just rudely just said, eggs. (laughs) And he went, what? He went, eggs. He's like, the eggs are over there. He said, I need eggs. And the eggs are there. And so the guy grabbed a box of eggs. And uh, he said, I haven't got any money. I'll I'll pay you back. He went, no, you've got to pay for the eggs. He's like, "I I need that now. And it turned out that he needed these eggs fast because Boris Johnson had just pulled up outside. <laughs> so so don't feel too bad. It's That's like really good. He's going through his life <laughs> with people calling him a fascist when he's looking at a pewter knife rest and people egging him at traffic lights when he's just stopped for a second. I was in a salvage shop the other day and uh, a lady who was, I don't know, you know, she was probably 25, 26. She uh, said to the guy, so do you do sandwiches? And he said, mm, yeah, yeah, it's a sandwich shop. And she looked at the counter and she tapped the glass and she said, is that an egg? And he said, yes, it's an egg. She went, mm. <laughs> <laughs> What did she think it was? Yeah. It's an egg. <laughs> <laughs> well, here's the thing. Whether it's an egg or a rude man in Fortnum and Mason's, Boris Johnson's health was kind of at risk. Uh, that day, that Christmas, oh, you put the Foreign Secretary's health. This is not making me feel better. At risk. Because what happens when someone is rude to us, we have a real moment uh, where someone has, in our eyes, just been unfairly rude. You know, he wasn't in a professional setting. He was in his own time shopping for uh, unnecessary implements for Christmas. <laughs> yeah. a, a huge cost. Like a fascist would. Yeah, yeah using the taxpayer's money. <laughs> um, but he would have taken that home We should stress he probably wasn't using the taxpayer's money probably to buy not, something. No. It was probably his own. His own. Um, he um, he would have taken that home, by which I mean that nugget of anger rather than that knife rest. And he would have found it harder to relax that evening because of what happened. He won't have been able to focus on chats with his family. His sleep 
may have been disrupted because when we have a bad day, we take that home with us uh, and it affects us um, to the point where we can't communicate in the same way with our family. Uh, We might snap at them a little bit easier because we have kind of caught that part of rudeness. We talked in the past about rudeness being a neurotoxin and catching that rudeness and being therefore quicker to anger. But also it affects people's sleep. They might drink more as well, which again plays into into the same thing. So in, in the next day, not because of the booze, but because of the uh, anger and the frustration mm. and the confusion, they have in essence what I call uh, like a rudeness hangover. Right. It means that they are the next day quicker to snap at their partner. Their partner will then be quicker to snap at someone else. They go to their office. They see rudeness when none was intended. And very quickly you see how a moment between two men over a knife rest in a posh department store affects the next day of their life and then affects other people. It's also been shown that not only does this stress that comes with unnecessary rudeness affect your mental well-being, but it can also be quite a physiological thing as well. It can affect what's going on in your body. And when you start to look at that, Mark, you must have great regrets of what happened that evening. I am slightly aware that this happened shortly after Brexit. <laughs> and I'm very worried that my unguarded remark has led to a simple, like a toppling of dominoes of problems <laughs> with the Brexit thing, where Boris Johnson has gone in the next day, he's not slept very well, he's angry, it's, it's, going, it's affecting everyone around him. It's amazing to think that just calling a man a fascist without realising he was standing next to you could actually have proper effects on, on a country, on a, on a global level. <laughs> You've played right into Putin's hands. That's what he wanted. <laughs> now, he he, I like. <laughs> um, but interestingly, you mentioned that and you mentioned Brexit. And, and that was a time where it became enormously, and still is, but enormously sort of corrosive, I think, to the country's general mental well-being. Yeah. It's particularly when you bring in social media. One thing voted on divides a country down the middle. Both sides incredibly angry at each other. And there is just a, a fog of noise white noise, anger constantly and you can see how things very simple comments online can spiral out of control yeah. that leads to like a degradation of, of, of that mental well-being and yeah. you, you've seen things spiral out of control I, sure. I, I'm a very keen mudlarker oh, This is the thing where, yeah, very. sometimes I'll talk to you mm. and you'll be standing in the Thames. Yeah, that's right, yeah, I like to go down to the Thames and find what we call liquid history right? Uh, which usually means dirt Tenant, um, Tenants cans. Yeah, but every now and then you'll find a tenant's can from the early 80s. Uh, you're not in a full river at this at this stage. This no. is the mud element. No, so, I have, so how does that work? I have two hours where the tide of the Thames, which is a tidal river, goes out. And so using the uh, uh, the uh, tide timetables, which are worked out by the moon, <laughs> yeah. which again is a Is this Radio 4? Is this now Radio 4? <laughs> it goes out and you get to see things. The best thing I've ever found is a dead eel. Um, <laughs> it was really big. It was great. Good. Um, but not valuable, weirdly. And... Uh, <laughs> Uh, I, I follow a lot of different sort of mudlarking groups on Facebook. Right. And what people tend to do is they put up their finds. And one of the things that all mudlarkers dream of finding are these things called bellamine jugs. Bellamine jugs are these jugs, also known as witch bottles, uh, that have faces on. And they mm. date from the sort of 16th and 17th centuries. They come from Germany. And wine used to be imported in them. And to find a whole one is a very, very rare occurrence. Mm-hmm. But some of them have been stuck down in the mud of the Thames for 300 years and have survived. And last week, 
someone found a complete one. Hmm. They were a novice. They were overjoyed with it. And they showed photographs of them taking it out of the mud and holding it up. So it's like when you see these stories about an angler who on his first attempt catches something like a shark. Exactly that. Or a big eel, yeah. <laughs> uh, which, again, has no value. But this person went onto Facebook and they said, I can't believe this. I am so delighted. I have found a complete Bellamine jug. And the first comment, Someone wrote, looks like you need to clean your fingernails, matey, because they'd been digging around in the mud. In the mud. And the original poster then wrote, fuck off, you don't know me. (laughs) (laughs) And the next, the commentator then responded that he went, stick your Bellamine jug up your arse. (laughs) (laughs) So in this rarefied, refined pursuit of... uh pursuing history of, of of taking the treasures that time has somehow managed not to claim yeah he was a fucking asshole he can <laughs> shove it up his ass it was an amazing sort of thing now had they been in the same room he would have said you need to clean your fingernails and the person would have gone <laughs> yeah. not that funny yeah. but hey 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 we're all getting on on the online world that rudeness boom but you saw he was rude and the other person without saying i think you've overreacted here mate just went straight in on shove it up your ass yeah it's these steps, these steps of anger that just it just goes straight to the next level. Mm. It's like an, a lift, isn't it? It's it like is. The, you just go straight to the next floor and it goes up and up and up like a thermometer rising and bubbling at the top as it explodes. You can see that with the Brexit thing because people are so entrenched in their view about whether we remain or we leave that any criticism of it is seen as being absolutely a red rag to a bull. So if someone was to say, um, well, you know, I think it's going to be a good thing for Britain and someone says, I think you need to, you know, possibly look at the figures someone's going to go why don't you shut your fucking mouth (laughs) it's just a strange thing where we don't have any of the gaps in an argument anymore yeah your default position if challenged is to just try and destroy someone with rudeness it seems like even 20 years ago you might go your whole life and never experience fight or flight no and now every time you check your phone (laughs) it's like what do i do here (laughs) it is like carrying a war zone in your pocket and and this i think must be having an extreme effect on the health of the people. Oh, it must do. Again, not just the mental health, but it's been shown that high levels of stress or a constant even wearing, mundane kind of corroding effect from incivility has an effect on, on blood pressure and on cortisol levels, which then have knock-on effects on on the heart, for example, or on the immune system and, and, and certainly on the brain. I talked to this guy called Dr. Robert Sapolsky. He's a Californian academic. He Mm -hmm. looks more like a Californian academic than any Californian academic in history. (laughs) And he told me something that I didn't put in the book because it was sort of an afterthought, but particularly lately, I think it's got real pertinence. And he was saying that in a world where everyone is just rude to each other all the time, we kind of get used to it. Mm. We we adapt. I think we we shouldn't, but we, we do because it becomes kind of the norm however in a world where people are rude specifically to you because of your race or your religion or the fact you're boris johnson for example <laughs> he thinks this would have like a profound effect on health and he says that while this this bit hasn't been proved it is well documented that there are much higher rates of high blood pressure in african americans than in other americans and some have suggested that this is almost like a generalised response to... The every, pressures that they're under. Everyday racism. Yeah. And and those sort of everyday monsters that sort of creep out of the closet. You're not sure suddenly why someone is treating you that way or you're expecting them to treat you that way. And when they do treat you that way, 
it, it confirms what's happening and it has this this sort of you're in a very good position to talk about this because you you do react very very negatively to, to people who are rude mm. to the point where you'd write a whole book about it <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's but, true but do you find physically it affects you yeah i do mm. um i think i think you know i do i um i mean it, it depends sometimes i find it funny some days it washes over me mm-hmm. And other days, I'm just like, why? The, the reaction I have most is desperation. Mm. It's not anger. It's not acceptance. It's just, why? Mm. What was the point in that? Why did you do that? I get a specific type of rudeness that only when I've pointed it out to my wife does she start to notice it. And now she gets angry about it on my behalf. <laughs> so it's like I've passed it on. <laughs> but it'll be someone will come up to me and they'll say something nice in a pub on the street, in a restaurant. But they'll always put in like a little dig and right. I'm waiting for it. Mm. And it'll be like, hey, I, yeah, I really I really like your books. And I'm like, thank you very much, you know, because my philosophy is, you know, a stranger's just a friend you haven't met. And, um, you know, I, I try and write the books like like we're friends. And so when someone comes up, it feels like we've shared something. Like if I know what book they've read, it feels like I know them somehow. Mm. And then they'll go, I didn't like that other thing you did. And I'm just like, why'd you say that bit? Just leave it there. No one goes, I'm going to go up and tell him I really like his books. And then I'm going to say something that whips that away and creates a moment of tension. But then it's my job then to make them not feel like they've been rude Hmm. because there's that moment afterwards where they realize what they've said and that maybe it's come across badly. And then it's my job to kind of go, oh, well, not everything's for everyone. And yeah, no, you you know, maybe that could have been a bit, you know, whatever. So, so. I then find myself dealing with their side of the rudeness as well. Gotcha. And, I, and I do get worn down by that. Yeah, I can imagine. That sounds awful. I can't imagine anything worse. That I, I wouldn't want people speaking to me in any circumstances anyway. <laughs> but the idea that they'd come up and they'd they, they give with one hand and take with the other, that sounds like a really bad parenting. Where you just never know what level you're on, uh, You know whether you should be happy or sad. But it's weird because I then take on the responsibility of their rudeness. Mm. Um, but if I see rudeness happening, we've talked about it in past episodes. You know, we're both people who will call it out. Yeah. And we're still struggling to work out the best way of doing that. Because, again, we talked at the top about how rudeness could kill. You don't know how someone else is going to react. Mm. You don't know if the person, you know, driving behind you in America, for example, is going to have a gun. Yeah. Um, and these are real things that really happen there's a guy i talked to called jack Katz, who wrote a great thing about road rage in la and he talked to a lot of people who get wound up from 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 zero to a hundred in the matter of a couple of seconds through a perceived slight or a moment of disrespect Mm. or someone's cut them off and they see that as a comment on who they are as a person it affects their mental well-being they fly to rage they break out in a sweat their heart beats faster and someone there's a story in the book about someone who had um you know, being cut off by someone else. And they sort of vaguely knew where this person might live. And they went and they picked up their son who had a gun. And they went looking for that person. Ugh. With the, I guess, the intent of, well, who knows what. But it was, you know, it, it was not good. They didn't find the person. Mm. But when they got home, that person was waiting for them. And he shot and killed the woman. Oh, my Lord. I mean, I, what there is something in this, right? I don't want Good, to... Good, because we've done six episodes. <laughs> I think what we should do, and this is, I'm thinking outside the box, like all of these Californian thinkers do. Yeah. What we should do in this country, where we obviously don't have firearms, is we should arm 1% of the people. 
and they should be given a pass that if someone is rude to them, they are allowed to shoot them dead. Right? Now, I think that would stop people being rude. Right. I think I think the Americans are onto something here. Okay. I don't see gun crime in America as a problem. I see it as a solution. <laughs> Have you got your phone on you now? No. Andy, the, the, the engineer here. Andy, would you mind um, just, uh, first of all, finding out how many people live in the United Kingdom at the moment and then working out what 1% of that is? There are 65.6 million people in the country. So we're talking about 65,000 people. Yeah. So you, you think that... What's that? That I would mean, send a strong message. Is that, is that, that's probably... Well, um, that's a small town. That's not even a place you've heard of. Mm. That's all those people. It's Loughborough. <laughs> now, look, if, if someone is listening in Loughborough, I don't want everyone in Loughborough to be shot no. dead. Of course I don't. What I want is all the rude people in Loughborough to be shut dead. Right. That might be five or six. <laughs> okay. Would that, would that make Loughborough a worse place, Danny? Or a much, much, much better place? I've angered the Loughborough Echo in the past, so I'm, I'm, I'm going to take the fifth uh, <laughs> on this one. If I had a gun, I'd force you to answer this question at gunpoint. But isn't it interesting how... Look, we're talking about how rudeness you know, could kill. But mm. rudeness, it does have a direct correlation, we know, with violence and, yeah. and violent behaviour. And we're talking about it in a, in a sort of a jokey way. But it just does, and it just feels like it's getting worse. Yeah. I, I, I totally agree with that. The mafia and gangs, what do they trade on? They trade on respect. Respect. He disrespected me. Yeah. And this feeling of being disrespected cuts to the core of so many people who are quick to anger. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, I mean, the, the opposite of respect, of course, is rudeness. Mm-hmm. Because what you're doing, of course, is you're saying, I'm better than you. I'm going to tell you off. Mm-hmm. I'm going to treat you poorly. I'm going to treat you in a way that I would not myself be treated. Again, I don't want to say I'm on the side of the gangs here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, we'll, we'll make but sure. But the gangs clear. are onto something. People who we, you know, and we, we talked about things spiraling out of control. Whether that is a moment with a gang member, um, mm. where it goes from zero to a hundred. Whether it's a moment of road rage. Whether that is social media uh, with your story about the the, the, the angry, Bellamine jug, the mudlarkers. Mm. Where it gets extraordinarily dangerous as well is when we have people in power who are famously rude, mm. who react in the moment, who have that same feeling that a guy in a car has when he feels he's been disrespected, who feels like a member of the mob who has to teach someone a lesson, who eschews diplomacy and politeness and instead goes for a quick response, put bluntly, on social media. I'm not only talking about Donald Trump here. I'm also talking about Duterte from the Philippines. I'm talking about Kim Jong-un. I'm talking about a generation of statespeople who are now realising that they can cut through all the nonsense, all the red tape, all the chivalry, politeness, diplomacy, and go straight for anger, and that it will create a sort of cathartic response Mm. in a certain percentage of, of their base. Now, that sends a message to future generations that they too can act that way. And very quickly, we can see how a moment of rudeness could lead to the apocalypse. That that makes it sound very serious indeed. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, it's rudeness, Danny. If anything's going to lead to the extermination of the human race, it will be the way we treat one another. Yeah, I do, you know, it's it's all human interaction, isn't it? It's how we behave. If we want to be in a civil society, we have to act in a in a civil way. Or 
we are 1% of the population. Another good idea. But I want to bring in a guest because rather than talking about the apocalypse, rather than talking about social media, I want to narrow it down a bit and talk to someone who is, he's a, he figures highly in my book. He's an academic uh, called Dr. Amir Erez. And, and he and his teams have done some fascinating uh, research into the effects of rudeness on our psychology, but really how that can lead to someone listening right now while ending up in a hugely treacherous situation through no fault of their own. And some of it can be pretty dark. So let's ring up Amir Erez. Dr. Amir Erez, are you there? I'm here. How are you? I'm doing very well. Thank you. How are you? Very well also. Thanks. You feature a lot in my book because you really are at the forefront of kind of investigating this world of rudeness. And some of the things you found out, I just found extraordinarily kind of powerful and fascinating and also quite dark at times, a little bit kind of frightening. It really made me realise where rudeness could take us. But when you got into investigating rudeness, you weren't really expecting to find anything out, were you? No, it actually started as a bet. As a bet? <laughs> yeah. I did not believe. I worked with uh, my co-author to many of these papers, uh, Chris Porath. Mm-hmm. And I, I just gave a talk at the university that she worked at, like the University of Southern California. And she took me to lunch after my talk. And she told me very enthusiastically about her research on rudeness. Mm-hmm. And I, in a very rude manner, I told her that I don't believe this research. <laughs> <laughs> because the way that I thought about it is that we are pretty resilient as individuals. Like we see a lot of negative things that happening in our lives and in our environment, and we tend to ignore them uh, in order to remain positive. So I thought that rudeness will be one of these things. Like it's pretty small. Like it seems to me like to be not significant enough that people will pay too much attention to it. Okay, so you get insulted, you get over it. And you just keep going like we do in many other things that happen in our life. Mm -hmm. So like she said, all right, then let's test it. (laughs) And we did. And she was right and I was wrong. (laughs) (laughs) How how do you test for the damage that rudeness does? So the way that we started testing it, we were just like, we we manipulated rudeness by being rude to people (laughs) in different ways. And we uh, then asked them to do different tasks that are cognitively kind of moderately difficult. For example, solving anagrams. Anagrams are words that you scramble and you need to put them back together or brainstorming tasks, like uh, what can you do with a brick, for example. Yeah, one of them was, can you come up with creative uses for a brick, Uh, which is one of the the best academic questions I've ever heard. Yeah, and and this is actually, it's a pretty common creativity task. And what we found that people like in the rudeness condition, they are much worse at solving the anagrams, and they produce less uses for a brick. The uses are much less creative. For example, people are coming up with solutions like hanging it uh, on a museum wall and calling it abstract art, <laughs> selling it on eBay, things that are kind of funny and creative. But people in the rudeness condition came up with very mundane solutions. 
Mm. Like building a house, building a bridge and so on. Huh. And, and this is because they just experienced rudeness. You, you had, without them realising, had someone, an actor, say, treat them in a rude way. Yes. And that's exactly why, what, what we did. So, for example, like one of the rudeness conditions that we had, we had people, like, we invited them to come to a certain room where the experiment will take place. And they come to the room... And there is a sign on the door that's saying the experiment is actually going to take place in a different room. But there are many signs on the door, and people miss it, and they get in. And somebody is sitting there who doesn't look very busy, and they say, uh, I came to the experiment, and he tells them, uh, what can't you read? <laughs> but you prefer to disturb me. I'm not uh, a secretary. I'm a busy professor, and you disturb me. Yeah. Uh, so this is one rude example that we in one of the manipulations of rudeness. And they wouldn't have realised that was part of the experiment. They go into another room and are asked to come up with creative uses for a brick. But the, the yes. people who've met the busy professor, I, I suppose, is it the frontal lobes that have been affected? Yes, and that we found in uh, other studies. Mm. So we have a study uh, that we, ha- we haven't published yet. Mm but uh, that shows that it affects working memory, which is the part of our cognitive system like, where most of the analytical activity is happening, like where you put ideas together, where you plan, uh, when you set goals, where you manage goals. All this is happening in working memory. And we conducted five studies that show that rudeness directly affects this part of the cognitive system. Which, which I suppose is fine if your job is simply to come up with creative uses for a brick or you work in the anagram industry. <laughs> but if your job takes the lives of others in your hands, if you are, say, a, a lorry driver, an airline pilot, if you're the person who weighs people before kicking them off a bridge to do a bungee jump, or more terrifyingly, tell us what happens if you're, say, a surgeon. So we conducted two studies two simulation studies with doctors at uh, neonatal ICUs. And in one of them, we did it in hospitals. And we found that uh, the doctors and nurses who experience like uh, incivility, Mm -hmm. they cannot think appropriately, they miss diagnosis, they get stuck in the first diagnosis. Mm -hmm. So they're anchored to the first diagnosis and they don't switch it like while other diagnosis is the correct diagnosis. They do not resuscitate appropriately. They do not ventilate appropriately. They give the wrong medications. It's just really scary stuff. Oh, it's absolutely terrifying. So within these studies, which I think you did in Tel Aviv, a team of surgeons who experienced... some incivilities that, that, again, you had um, planted within the simulation that they wouldn't have been really aware of what you were doing. They became, what, 50% less effective at the surgery that they were undertaking in this simulation on a pretend baby. Yeah, so it wasn't exactly a surgery. It was an emergency situation uh-huh. where they had to identify a specific disease that happens with infants. But we did also another study where they had to diagnose five patients throughout the day. So they move from station to station uh, with different emergency situations. And the effect of rudeness in the morning lasted throughout the day. Not only treating one patient, it's treating five patients. 
So in, in many ways, I mean, this is, you know, if a doctor or, or a nurse can be affected for their entire day for, for a number of patients, all down to one moment that happened that morning, whether at home or at work or on the way to work, this feels like rudeness, which we've never really taken that seriously in the past. It's not underestimating it to call it a silent killer. Yeah, that's what we're finding. So these studies were done with simulations, but we have another study that again was conducted at Tel Aviv with real surgeries, where we observed people conducting surgeries and how they treat each other during the surgery. And what we found that in surgeries where there were incidents of rudeness, they made more mistakes during the surgery. That is astonishing. Yeah. That's terrifying. It is. Has it, has it changed the way that you uh, treat people? Are you more acutely aware of rudeness now? I am. In general, I try to treat people with respect, but it definitely affected me. One of the things that I do, I talk with a lot of people and I give many more presentations, which I usually don't like to do. Mm-hmm. Like, but in order to spread the word. But I mean, how, how frightened should we be of this? Because, you know, in some ways, I mean, rudeness... Um... It spreads in that way, doesn't it? And it has a, a contagion effect. In the, it has a real effect on the minds of previously uninfected people. And it just takes that one moment. I mean, how, how, how scary do you find this? It's very scary. And this is a study that I conducted with two of my PhD students that we found that it actually spreads. Like, so we have evidence that it is contagious. Can, can you tell me a bit about that? How, you know, because well, I think instinctively we feel like that's true. We know from our own experience day to day that if someone is rude to us, it does affect the rest of our day. It does affect our mood. It might affect how we are with a loved one. It might affect us if we're a teacher and how we treat our students. But how do we know that it is contagious? So, again, this is a study that I conducted with Trevor Falk, my student, who is mm-hmm. now a professor at the University of Maryland, and, and uh, Andy Woolham, who is a professor at the University of North Carolina at Wilmington. What we did is, for example, in a negotiation situation, we measured how rude a partner was in the negotiation. Mm -hmm. And then we looked if a third party is affected by that. So if I negotiate with you, then you negotiate with Mark. Uh Is Mark affected by the rudeness that I enacted? So have I passed it on in a sense? Yeah. Exactly. So, and we, what we found that it spreads like the cold virus. <laughs> so it's very, very easily contagious. Wow. So you don't need a special, a special agent, like to spread the disease. You don't need the special conditions, like many other diseases, like Lyme disease. So if you're rude to Danny, Danny will then be rude to me, yeah. and then I'll be rude to the next people that I do, and it just keeps on going in this ever-expanding chain. It is. So I can see, you know, how that would be a problem on a one-to-one basis and how that would affect my relationship with Mark, say. What happens when the audience is bigger? What happens when you have someone at the very top of the chain, let's call him the president, (laughs) just for the sake of argument, (laughs) who is broadcasting this kind of rudeness, normalising it, allowing a generation of people to suddenly act in a way that they thought they weren't allowed to act in. What happens when an entire country witnesses rudeness? What effect can that have? So we don't have a study on that, but I can speculate that it's definitely people model this behavior and act this way. And we have evidence that rudeness is increasing. So this is from the work of, a, of Christine Porat, 
that she measured the percentage of people like that are affected by rudeness in the workplace in 1998, and it was about 25%. I think she did another one in 2013, and she found that 98% of the people like, in the workplace like, report that they're affected by rudeness. 98%, yeah. So we know that it's increasing. 98%. I mean, that is essentially everybody. You normally yeah. have a 2 or 3% margin of error. <laughs> so. <laughs> yeah. So, so everybody is affected by that right now. And probably because of the influence of the leaders. Yeah. The influence of the leaders, maybe the rise of social media, reality television. But now we're at a point where reality TV and politics have kind of crossed over, not just because we have a reality star at the top of it who's been trained in a sense that power and fame comes with rudeness. Um, rudeness is what yeah. they edit into uh, into these shows. But also it's had a trickle-down effect just in, in news broadcasting and the fact that we now have essentially entertainers instead of journalists. Absolutely. We have a study now that we are conducting. We, we, we haven't done it yet, but where we take clips of journalists interviewing people. And we want to see if when people are watching it, if it affects their working memory. From other studies, we know that even when you witness it, it affects your working memory. So I'm quite sure that we'll get the results that we expect. That mm. you watch it on TV. And essentially, like when it affects your working memory, you're becoming uh, less smart. Yeah, wow. yeah, your brain is affected by it, and um, yeah, it's the dumbing down of a of a world. And that's exactly what is happening, unfortunately. <laughs> but there is hope. Now, I hope I can say that with some degree of confidence. And I say it only because the last time I talked to you, um, when I was interviewing you for the book, you said something right at the end, which really fascinated me. And um, at the time, you were just, I think, on the cusp of doing it. But essentially, Mark, this is very exciting. Mm. Amir was saying to me that, in essence, they're developing a kind of rudeness vaccine. Now, <laughs> would that be fair to say, Amir? Uh, yes. So we are working on it, and we had we found some things that work. Mm -hmm. One of the things that we found is that uh, there are actually cognitive behavioral modification tools that we used with the doctors that um, inoculated them from the effect of rudeness. When you raise the threshold of sensitivity to anger, they were immune to the cognitive effects. They still recognized that people were rude to them, but it raised their level of functioning to a normal level. So they were not affected by it as much. So, so hang on. So you would show them images of anger rather than rudeness, and that stronger emotion would mask rudeness. Is that, is that, am I right there? Yes. So it's a little bit more complicated than that. But uh, I, yeah. I would hope so. Otherwise, I'd be doing your job. <laughs> <laughs> but essentially... It's a method that was developed by a cognitive psychologist in Israel. His name is Yair Barhaim. And that actually was at first developed to treat phobias in order to shift people's attention from the things that they are scared of and cognitively train them like, to shift their attention from the scary stimuli. Huh. And that uh, helped them deal better with their phobias. And then he developed this program to raise their level of tolerance to expressions of anger. And that helped the doctors and the nurses. It completely eliminated the effect of rudeness. Wow, completely eliminated the effect. Yes. Uh, with doctors, we conducted a recent study in the hospital here at the University of Florida. And we found two other things. First of all, we found that people that are very, very good at perspective taking, uh -huh. 
so they can put themselves in other people's shoes, they manage, again, it does not affect them to the extent that it affects other people. Uh-huh. And another thing with doctors, it's specifically important for doctors. Like, as I told you, we found that doctors are making actually terrible diagnostic mistakes because they are anchored to a first diagnosis and they don't shift to the right diagnosis. But if they ask enough questions, the patients, then the effect disappears. So like this is a more practical tool than the vaccination with the cognitive behavioral modification tool. So is, is it fair to say that, that there are two options and one is to be very empathetic and very understanding and the other is just to toughen up? Yes, yeah, so it's not exactly empathetic because if I empathize with you and take your emotions, then I'm actually maybe more affected by what you're saying. Right. What it is mm. is that I put myself in your shoes. Like, so I look at it from not from my own perspective, from other people's perspectives. And people that are good at that, they kind of understand that it has nothing to do with them. All the person mm. who is rude, mm. it's their problem. It's their, like, it's, it's all on them. So it doesn't affect them to, to that extent. So they wow. don't really identify with the rude person, but they kind of understand. So it's more a kind of a cognitive way of dealing with that than emotional way of identifying with them. And and when it comes to that vaccine that we were just talking about, and you know, I obviously I use vaccine because I don't know really what else to call it. Is it kind of like it's kind of a video game, isn't it? That doctors will will kind of play at the start of their day. It is. So it's about fifteen minutes videotape. And this is why we're trying to find some other methods because I don't know if you can expect doctors like at the beginning of the day like to play this game. They're very, very busy. No. It sounds like some kind of CIA brainwashing tape. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so can you see a time where if, if rudeness uh, starts to take over the world, we'll have to erect giant screens yeah. uh, in public spaces all over the world that play out a 15-minute tape of pure anger in order to inoculate us against the rudeness that we'll in- inevitably experience throughout the day? Yes, but I think that the better way of of dealing with it is just make people aware of the very, very negative consequences. No, absolutely. And when people are aware of it, maybe it will convince them to stop this behavior. And your book, I think, is a very good way of doing it. Oh well, great. Well, I, well, I, yeah, I, I'd, I'd rather be part of the solution than part of the problem. And especially, it's, it's interesting to me that you focused so much on hospital errors and doctors as well, because we can all kind of relate to that. We can all imagine um, having to, you know, go under the knife, and we don't want someone who's in a, an affected state to be operating on us. And of course, hospital errors in in America alone, I think it's something like the third biggest killer. It is. In 1999 came a report that's called the To Air is Human, where they estimated that 44,000 to 98,000 people are, are being killed by medical errors each year. And now the estimation is five times higher than that. And wow. it is the third. It's after heart attacks and cancer. It's the third cause of death. Yeah, and who knows how much of that is down to, you know, incivility caused by stress or despair, um, often found in places of high emotion, such as the hospitals. Yeah, and unfortunately, since they they know about it for quite a long time, they try to deal with this. And in general, it's not very successful. 
because the way that they try to deal with this medical error is, is by using technical things. Right. For example, machines that dispense medication, decrease the work hours of residents, and so on. And all these things, they have some modest effect. For example, the machines reduce medication errors by 10%. But we found that the errors that we are talking about, like that are caused by rudeness, explain something like from 40 to 50% of the variance. That's insane. Wow. So it seems to us at least, and we conducted these two studies in Israel, I conducted several other studies now, and we find very, very consistent effects. So it seems to me that hospitals need to start looking at social interactions. Absolutely. Social interactions rather than spreadsheets. That's right. Well, it's scary and it's real and it's something uh, we need to take uh, a lot more seriously going forward. And uh, you really are at the forefront of it. So, uh, uh, well, on behalf of everybody, thank you for that. Thank you. And thank you for your book. Not at all. Not at all. Dr. Erez, crack on with that vaccine and save the world. Okay. (laughs) Thank you so much, Amir. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you. That said, there is something in the fact that this gives me a new and pretty much undetectable way to kill my enemies. (laughs) When I find out they're having routine surgery, I just need to go to the hospital and kick off. (laughs) Just find out who their doctor is and be mildly abrasive. (laughs) So, Dr. Amir Erez there, just a fascinating guy, I think. Absolutely amazing. And the work he's doing is very important, but I think we don't take rudeness seriously enough. No. No. As he says, when he first started, neither did he. Neither did he. He had no idea. You know, I mentioned it being kind of um, a silent killer. But I think with those examples and and those results, we can see that that genuinely it is and that perhaps we should think about tempering our behaviour and at least learning what the behaviour of others truly means so that we are better prepared for it. Yeah. Should we? I mean, we could do an experiment now, couldn't we? Yeah. Where... We could see the effect of rudeness on uh, the human uh, nervous system, if you like. Sure. So why don't you say some rude things to me, and then I'll see if I'm physically affected by it. You're an absolute moron. Have we started, or is this the... No, I'm about to start. Great. You're an absolute moron. Yeah, I I feel feel the same. Your idea about Mm. arming 1% of the people to shoot 1% of the people is unworkable at best. It has made my hand tingle a bit. I don't know if that's a veins thing. I'm supposed to be being rude to you. I just sort of can't. Oh, that's like... See, now that's made me feel really good. Yeah! Well, th- then we see how the world should be. So it is, you know, it's there's hope out there, a rudeness vaccine maybe on the cards. And if we can get to the point where we can't be rude to people because we're sitting three feet away from them and staring into their lovely puppy dog eyes, then maybe the world's going to be all right. You should probably know as well that I am actually carrying a gun. (laughs) I was waiting for you to get rude. At last. I was going to shoot you in the leg. (laughs) What an end to the series that would be. (laughs) If you have enjoyed this podcast series, please consider leaving a glowing review, which will just help people find these episodes and maybe give a few rude people pause for thought. The book F You Very Much has got a lot more in it available right now to download or to buy in paperback. I really hope that you like it. My thanks, as ever, to my very good friend, Mark Haynes, who is not carrying weaponry. And until the next time, F you very much. (laughs) 